Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show fueled by Elfmark VDS Racing. On today's show, we're going to look at the Moto2 and Moto3 action from the Spanish Grand Prix at Jerez. Steve English, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler here. And uh, boys, this is quite a rarity. All three of us actually in the same location. It's, it's quite quite good, isn't it, Ad? Yeah, it's not a digital podcast, Steve. It's, uh, it's quite a novelty. Yeah, I had the misfortune of spending uh, my full weekend looking at uh, Adam's ugly beak, and uh, here he is again staring straight at me. So, yeah, unfortunate times. <laughs> it's even worse whenever you've got my ugly mug as well, Neil. But uh, tell you what, we've actually got an awful lot to cover from Hareth because in the Moto2 and Moto3 classes, once again, we were able to see just tons of stuff. Like the, the Moto2 race, we saw obviously out in front, Digi was able to, to run away from the pack, really solid performance, but the battle for second... You know, really good battle on the podium spots. Moto3, obviously, we saw Pedro Acosta. We might as well just have a Pedro Acosta section on the show on a weekly basis, it seems. But, you know, Moto3, tons of action down to the last corner again. Really action-packed weekend, though. Yeah, it was. Yeah, good. Uh, lots of interesting stories. Moto2, not the most exciting race up at the front. Um, with Digi escaping, but I think we're kind of used to that at Jerez. It's very rare that we get a great Moto2 race there. Um, but still interesting to see Digi come, um, you know, show his full potential. Um, and like you said, yeah, Moto3, like Acosta just gets better and better. It's, it's quite remarkable. Can I just throw in a question here? I mean, um, the Moto2 victory was the first one we've seen for Italy so far this season. It was the first time that national anthem has rung out. I mean, do we think is there a cause for Italian fans to think there's not so many strong riders coming through to win Grand Prix anymore? I mean, okay, we got. Let's look in the Premier class. You got Pecco Bagnaia, Franco Morbidelli. You know, pretty looking pretty strong. Bastianini, Luca Marini. Well, not into a winning position, is but it? But I'm saying, look through the rest of the classes, and second, then, third, and fourth in the Moto Three World Championship are all Italians. They're all old Italians, but they're all Italians. Maybe they haven't looked like winning. Well, you can constantly say Romano Fanati's going to win the next race. Well, <laughs> you know, he nearly did it as well. I would say, yeah, Moto Two. You've got like the you know Tony Arbolino is going to be a good rider in the future. Celestino Vietti is going to be a good rider in the future. But it was interesting, I guess, last year that okay, obviously Sky Racing VR Forty Six moved Luca Marini up to the Premier Class, and that took away a lot of the resources from Moto Three. But they were also saying that Moto Three there wasn't really any young Italians that you know, fit their criteria that they wanted to sign. So, yeah, maybe like going down, the, right the way down the order. I'm not saying Italy's in the same position like Britain, but, you know, there used to be a time when, I mean, let's take the, the Valentino Rossi and uh, Jerez and the remarkable record he's had there, you know, as, as kind of like a little snapshot of that. Where Where is all like the Italian winners coming through? Maybe they're not the, the most powerful nation in Grand Prix, well, you know, compared to Spain, they haven't really been for a while now. Well, I think what's interesting with it is when you look at where the talent is coming from and say the talent cups or the CEV championships, there are some Italians, but they're not a ton of Italians like that was, say, 15 years ago. Now there's an awful lot more variety coming through at a young age. And uh, before we came on air, me and Neil were talking about it, actually, about the extent of riding that everyone gets now at a very young age. If you're in the CEV championship, you get test day before every every round you get qualifying and practice and you get your race most of those guys are racing in red bull rookies cup as well so on grand prix machinery they're gonna have you know 60 70 days I, a year i just think you know the jury's out i think on i mean someone like vietti of course and bezecchi is a fantastic talent for the italians but then looking motor three you've got andrea Migno. how many years has he been there you know, you can say the same for Nicolo Antonelli. Uh, if you look at Moto2 about Nic uh, Nicolo Bulega, you know, everyone thought he was going to be the next kind of Rossi to come through. There seems to be like a lot more hit and misses for Italy compared to how there was maybe 20 years ago. 
I think Bullock is an interesting one because whenever he came through as a Moto3 Junior World Champion, there was an expectation that he was going to really kick on and be that next superstar. But whenever you actually go back and look at that CEV season, he raced every round, whereas his championship rivals, I think it was Canet and Mir, missed rounds that year. So, you know, it kind of painted a picture that he was better than he actually had been up to that point. Now, he's been able to have some solid results, but, you know, he isn't the guy that people thought he was going to be. But when you look at Italy as a whole, there's, there is still talent coming through. It's just now there's more talent coming from other places as well. It's not quite as concentrated like it used to be. Yeah, plus like 20 years ago, like Italy had its fair share of riders that didn't quite make it, that looked promising. You know, like think of the Moto3, or sorry, the 125 class 20 years ago, there was a host of Italian names that went on to do not next to nothing the rest of their career, think, you know? Think about why Fanati ended, or how Fanati ended up on the grid. He was on the Italian Federation bike. The FIM, or sorry, the CIV said, we need to have more Italians on the grid. We need to have more young Italians having an opportunity. And then it just ended up being that they all went to Rossi instead. But do you think that pool is getting a little bit more shallow? I think that's, you know, the, the question that I'm asking. You know, if we've had four rounds and we've only seen one Italian victory, maybe it's only a matter of time. But maybe someone goes on to sweep the next six, but... Yeah, but then you've also got to look at it that, like, you get a rookie in, like, Pedro Acosta that's doing what he's doing. And yeah, he took a win off Foggia in Portimao. The problem with it is riders like Foggia are very up and down. They've always been that inconsistent. They can be really good one week and then it can be like what happened in Jerez the next week where you're out of the race after only a few laps. So I think it's not so much that there's less talent in Italy. There, I, I can't believe that. Whenever you go to Italy and you see all the kids riding around on mini bikes, they're still the same as they've always been. I do think that the biggest difference is now there's a much more equal way for everyone to get a chance. And that's whether it's the Talent Cups or the Rookies Cup. And instead of it being, you know, the 10 fastest Italian 14-year-olds that are all going to get really good bikes, maybe only two of them get really good bikes now. But I thought Whenever uh, we look at, say, the one Italian winner we've had so far this season, Digia, in the Moto2 class, his performance, Neil, it wasn't amazingly surprising that he went out and won. You know, he's always a confident rider. He goes well at a wrath. But uh, I thought his ride was great. It looked like he had all the bases covered. Yeah, yeah. He, he, uh, he said he kind of surprised himself with just how strong he was. Um, got a great start. Um, said that one of the things he had been struggling with all weekend was being fast right from the very start of his run, uh, first or second lap. But I think in the second or third lap, he was down to mid-141, super fast pace uh, for Jerez. Um, and um, yeah, didn't really let up the whole time. He was just able to yeah, run a really, really strong pace. Um, and uh, yeah, no let up really. You know, he didn't show any signs of pressure. He cracked a few times last year when he was in winning positions towards the end of races, but yeah, he didn't get any sort of hint of that. Um Pretty dominant, pretty dominant display. Um, and you would have to say that um, maybe like Bezeki, who finished second, you know, their, their championships would be start here in some respects because they've been a bit up and down the first couple of races. But uh, just the quality of Digi's ride makes you think that, um, yeah, he's going to be a bit of a force this year. And maybe not every race, but there's definitely going to be weekends where he'll be the man to beat. I thought it was quite a statement by Sam Lowe's in that Grand Prix as well. I mean, after, you know, his positive speed in the first couple of rounds and that big crash in, you know, the first corner in Portimao, that he had to reply. I mean, he had to get some kind of decent points on the board just to say, you know, I set the pace in this championship, I'm still here. Yeah, and I think um, with Sam, you know, Sam's always very honest and, and, and kind of tells it how it is. Um, but he said that that Portimao crash was 
on his mind for the first half of the race. He said he was riding quite nervously. He was a bit tense, uh, making a, little, a few little mistakes here and there, and he just wasn't able to find his rhythm. Um, and he, he thought that maybe that was a consequence of just being a bit nervous. He was very aware that he couldn't, you know, make another mistake and crash again. And Jerez is always, when it's hot like it was on Sunday, it's always quite easy to make a mistake in, you know, some of those heavy braking zones that there are there. So um, I agree with you. Yeah, I thought he rode quite mature. He managed to calm himself down and, came through and got a really good podium. Um, so he said after the race that he didn't think he could have um, run with uh, Di Gian Antonio. Um, so to come away with the third ahead of his two main championship rivals coming into the round was, yeah, solid weekend, I would say. Yeah, I was actually in Aragon just before we were recording this and uh, Mark VDS were testing there. I was chatting to Sam about the weekend and I was saying to him, you know, it was one of the the best races we've seen from him because you come back from Portimao, you come back from struggling at the start of the race and there was one moment, I think it was maybe on the exit of turn one, massive slide and I thought, you know, that's whenever he's just going to settle, come away, top five, finish, decent points, move on to the next round. And I think that's what he would have done last year in Hareth, because it was in Hareth 1, I think he had, he had one big moment in the final few laps, and he just settled down, took his fourth place, took his points, moved on to the next one, whereas now he's actually got that bit more confidence, and he pushed on, and if there was another lap, he might have been able to catch Bezeki, come away with 20 points instead, come away with a podium on a day when you probably shouldn't have come away with a podium. I think it was a great ride. I mean, Steve, you know Sam pretty well. I mean, what's your opinion on how he's approaching this season compared to the last you know, especially last year when he was really in title contention. I know he started the year injured, but I mean, just from talking to him on, on the record, off the record, what, what's your thoughts on how he's tackling things? I think you can see a big change in him and it's probably goes more back to the kind of rider he was whenever he came into into the Grand Prix classes. He came from super sport where he had to go up and beat Keenan and all the pressure that comes from that and came to Grand Prix thrown in at the deep end on a speed up you know you're going up against guys that have been in the class or in the Grand Prix paddock for four, five, six years you have to learn fast and he was very natural at the start of his Grand Prix career and then you take your knocks and you try and learn from them it's obviously taken you know a fair few knocks for Sam but I think now he's come out the other side of it he's had a team that clearly gives him everything that you need and that's really allowed him to relax and that's where you know you start to see more and more of the character of old that we would have saw from Sam where, you know, he's laughing, he's joking, he's just being cheeky again. Whereas whenever you're on an Aprilia struggling, it's nothing like that. You know, whenever you come back to Moto2 and it doesn't click immediately, it's not like that. And all it takes is, you know, a few race wins and then suddenly you're back to being the rider that you've always known you can be. And that's where, for me, you know, we're through four rounds in the year. We know who's going to be your title contenders in Moto2 again this year. And Sam's had one non-score, but he's able to look at it and say, well, you know, still had three poles. Could have had a pole in Hareth as well if it wasn't for you know, the, the crash in qualifying or the mistake on the last lap, on, on his last flying lap. And instead, you're able to look at it and say, you know what, I've been able to do a better job than pretty much everyone week in, week out in this class, especially going back to last year as well. So I think he's got that confidence that comes from that. Well, of Moto2, of course, Ralph Fernandez taking another top five win, so a top five finish. So he's looking pretty good in the standings. And Remy Gardner finished fourth, if I remember, memory serves. Out of the current... I mean, we're only four rounds into the season, but out of the top Moto2 guys, who do you think is most, who is closest to a MotoGP ride next year? I mean, Gardner's rumoured to be moving up. I mean, is there any, Bezeki, would you see, I mean, you wouldn't stick around for another year, would he? I don't think so. No, I would say both Gardner and Bezeki will be MotoGP riders next year. Um, I mean, you know, Gardner's talked about having 
uh, he, he's, I spoke to him, I had an interview with him on Thursday before the Spanish Grand Prix, asked him about this and he said, you know, it's a golden ticket hanging there in front of me. If I get the results I need to get in the first however many races, you know, I should have that option to climb up to MotoGP with KTM next year. And, you know, Pizzecchi, I think, VR46 has his own team next year. You have to imagine Bezeki's being looked at for that. If not, maybe one of the, the factory teams like Aprilia. You know, they tried to sign him at the end of last year. I think he would be a fantastic fit for Aprilia. Aprilia is in a great position at the moment. So, yeah, I would say those two guys are looking, yeah, well-placed. Yeah, because if you're Valentino, what do you do? Do you take a, you know, a saddle in your own team or do you hand it over to a bit of a young buck like uh, Bezeki? Well, there's two seats, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, for me, it's when you look at, the Moto2 class right now, there is a lot of talent coming through. If you're one of the MotoGP teams, someone like Raul has to be of interest to you because you can take a gamble on him. You know, he's adapted really well to a Moto2 bike already. Maybe as the year goes on, he learns all the nuances of it and then just put him onto a MotoGP bike and see what happens. I always think that you're looking at what do KTM do at like their fourth seat? Iker Lequona, super talent, but the results haven't been there. This is going to be two full seasons for him you know I think at this point KTM are going to have to look at it and say this experiment didn't work out and that's where someone like Fernandez could be that next experiment well Neil and I were talking about this in Jerez a little bit and you know I think Liquana I think there's a degree of patience around him I think people are prepared to give him time to learn but then if he's not showing the right kind of attitude um, that's where it's going to get dangerous but then, you know, Danilo Petrucci, I think, you know, KTM will be looking at that scenario as well and thinking, Danilo, we need to see at least some progress. You know, we understand you're going to get used to the bike and you, you might be fighting for points in the way that MotoGP is so close at the moment. But uh, I think, you know, if we start getting further and further into season and he's still struggling to break the top 15, then that's also puts his future at the team in doubt as well. Because, you know, I think it's very clear that KTM have make a song and dance about this pathway through the classes. So it's, there's there's a bit of a ticking clock over those two guys. And, you know, Ralph Fernandez, like his brother Adrian, uh, also a rookie in Moto3, both managed by the Kinigana family with incredibly strong ties to Red Bull. Um, you know, I, it's hard to imagine either of those two, especially Ralph jumping suddenly to maybe a monster energy bank team. Um, you'd say that the the flow for Raul is actually pretty strong into into GP in some form. Yeah, I think certainly it should be as well. I, I just always think that KTM are the one manufacturer that's really primed to take gambles on it because they're a young project. They've already got Binder and Oliveira locked in. So they know that their factory lineup is secure with two quality young riders. The Petrucci one is always an interesting one because when Petrucci went to Ducati, you know, everyone in the paddock looked at it and said, this is great, an Italian rider on an Italian bike. You know, if he wins a couple of races, job done. And that's pretty much what happened with it. Petrucci has made more sacrifices than most riders. You know, we've seen him, basically, you, you wouldn't recognize him from the rider that arrived in MotoGP in 2013. But maybe he's hit his ceiling. And like I've always said, that if I'm KTM, I'm looking at taking risks with the Tech Trois seats. I'd still say put Top Rack on a bike and see what happens. But, you know, there's obviously riders like Raul to come through as well. And you just wait and see what, what can come it's interesting what you say about hitting a ceiling because I did an interview with Jens Heimbach uh, in Jerez and he's together with Aki Ayu the, the guy responsible for spotting talent you know through the Northern Talent Cup um, whether it be the Asian Talent Cup or the British Talent Cup and um, and pushing that kind of talent into a, a GP framework um, and he you know I, I said to him you know you've you've had some fantastic young kids come through but then also some kids where you thought 
they're going to be hit riders and it failed. I mean, I'm thinking of Florian Al, uh, Carol Haneke. Uh, you could say both Ben Snyder came in with a lot of hype in Moto3, didn't really excel. Um, so, you know, why does that not happen? Or, you know, is there some kind of framework or philosophy you have as part of, of Aki Ayo and his team or, or on a Moto3 setup that if the kids don't blend with, then they're going to fail? And he was more like, we, we give them the opportunity, we give them the tools, but, you know, maybe these these guys are just hitting the peak of their ability and their talent. And that means they can't find the extra seconds to be Grand Prix front runners. They're, they're going to be mid-pack or at the end of the pack. And there's essentially nothing wrong with that. It's just a little bit sad. And, you know, it's not quite the star story everybody expects. Yeah, and I think the other side of that as well, it's a world championship. It's Grand Prix racing. And you, know, you look at the riders that, you know, Darren Binder, he went through the IO system, didn't work for him at all. It worked for his brother. You know, it comes down to the rider. And I think that's where, like, Moto2, Neil, is always interesting because when you look at the teams that are consistently at the front in Moto2, in Moto2 it's regularly been the same teams. It's the ones that put the right things together, the right people together, the right resources in place. And, you know, you look back over the last six, seven, eight years, the likes of Aki Ayo squad, Mark VDS, you know, they are the same teams that are up at the front year in, year out because they put the money in, they put the resources where it should be. It's just knowledge as well, isn't it? Grissini and... Exactly, yeah. They've got the, the personnel, the experience. Yeah, Pons was maybe not this year. It's not a good example for them, but that's always historically been a good a good team. And, and yeah, you have to say that it's just the, the crew chiefs or the, the technicians that have that experience, have that know-how. Um, I mean, Cito Pons, I think it's Manzi's crew chief this year. Santi Molero is the guy that worked with Crivier back in the day, you know, worked with Cito back in the day as years and years of experience on two strokes 250s 500s you know that's incredible to walk into a team with that level of experience 30 35 years uh, working at the absolute top level so um yeah um it's true what you say steve yep yeah, normally in moto 2 you've got the, the same challenges coming from the same teams um, and i think when someone comes to the fore like for example remy gardner did in the last or the previous two years with SAG, that's never historically been a, a really strong Moto2 team. Whenever a rider comes to the fore with that team or a team like that, that's when you think, oh, well, this is impressive, you know, because he's doing that maybe without the funding behind him, without the kind of preseason testing, the chance to go to a wind tunnel over the winter if, if needs be. Um, so, yeah. It's I a think. way to stand out, but the inverse thing of that is the riders who are with the established teams, if they're not shining, then it's... You know, we talk about pressure all the time, but it's this, this quite complicated. Yeah, and I think that's where it's always interesting to see how riders react and how teams react. And I think what we've seen over the last few rounds, one of the, the interesting ones for me was Augusto Fernandez, because we've seen him turn a corner. Everyone knows that how quick he can be. We saw him whenever he was on the Pons bike, he was able to be a front runner straight away. He's, he's had to grind to get to where he is, so he's not afraid of putting in the work. But it just didn't really tick for him last year. And then change crew chiefs, team clearly listened to him for what he wanted and then suddenly you know there has been a change in fortunes yeah yeah there has been but then you know that crash in second lap uh, this weekend was unfortunate but yeah it does seem that Augusto has got his got his mojo back you know he did crash out of I think third place um, so he was running up at the front in the positions that you know you, you kind of expect him to, to be in um, but yeah real disappointment there I would say just uh, before we finish up on Moto2, Neil, obviously we saw a new tyre in from Dunlop as well this weekend. Riders only able to use it in the qualifying sessions. But uh, it was interesting whenever you talked to Moto2 riders about it off the record. They were still saying, you know what, this is a tyre we're going to race with. 
all the way through the season. It's not gonna. It's not. It's a soft tire here in Hareth, but that's going to be the race tire in a lot of places this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dunlop always have to kind of err on the side of caution um, because all it takes is one rider um, that maybe isn't so um, canny with tire management to basically rip the tire up and post a photo on Instagram for the whole field to be affected by it, you know. So that's why Dunlop usually go a step harder just to be cautious, just to be completely sure because they don't want any problems whatsoever. So that's the, that's the most important thing for them. And then performance comes afterwards. And sometimes when you speak to people at Dunlop, they're maybe a wee bit frustrated with how cautious they are with their tire allocation. They want sometimes to be a bit more adventurous and bring tires that are a bit softer for the allocation. But yeah, interesting. Dunlop haven't been able to do a lot of testing with Model 2 teams or riders um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, yeah, th this was a chance to basically run a test within a race weekend. And it seemed to be pretty positive. I mean, we saw certain riders, you know, skim a second off their lap times using this kind of qualifying, like, uh, super soft well not super soft but soft tyre um, others maybe not as much time but um, yeah it's good to see Dunlop kind of innovating and um, Hareth I think is obviously since it got resurfaced a few years ago it's quite aggressive and temperatures are obviously quite high um, but when we go to somewhere that's going to be cooler yeah that could be a, a race option for sure Guys why, why do we hear so much about Michelin and, and tyre performance, tyre wear in MotoGP, but in, in the other classes, it, it's nowhere near as, such a big factor. I know we don't have the range of manufacturers in Moto2 and Moto3 as we do in MotoGP, but it seems so much... I mean, you could say 40% of media debrief talk with the riders every Grand Prix weekend is on the subject of tyres. But in Moto2 and Moto3, it's not the same. But how many media debriefs do you have with Moto2 and Moto3 riders during a weekend? I honestly think it's just that. It's, it's that the, the focus from the media's point of view, isn't there. Uh, if we were speaking, if we had debriefs with Moto2 and Moto3 riders every day of the weekend, we would hear a lot more about it, believe me. I mean, like Remy Gardner had a, well, according to Akiayo, had a duff tire in Sunday's race from the first lap, wasn't feeling what he was expecting to feel with that tire compound. Um, but it doesn't really get picked up on that much because there's not a massive amount of attention on, you know, Remy Gardner after the race. The problem with it is, is that, because MotoGP is so good right now, because there's so many good riders, great bikes, it's so competitive that, you know, that's where journalists then focus their attention. Like, obviously, for us, you know, predominantly writing English language or, you know, for me, a lot of British media, it was always a case of you focus on the British riders in the smaller classes. You don't go and you talk to everyone. You know, you can't do it. You just, you just run out of time. So you end up been very focused on certain riders and certain things. So and you're not thinking it's anything to do with the fact that they're all kind of running Triumph and Calex in Moto2 and there's just less margin for... I think, for, I think you're, you're probably onto something because when you get the tyre sheet in from Dunlop, it's pretty much the same tyre for everyone all the way through the season. So there is certain things like that, but I think mostly because everything's so controlled in Moto2 and Moto3 and also as well, you know, if you're talking to Moto3 riders, they're going to be complaining about what other riders were doing rather than what their bike was doing a lot of the time. You know, you're in you're in the middle of a dogfight the whole time. I think then in Moto2, obviously you end up where you have a lot of riders that have a lot more experience at that stage, but that also shines through in the races where you typically have, you know, three riders in a battle for the podium, four riders in a battle for the podium. And if you're there, you know, everything's working all right. And that's why we've seen a lot of riders quite consistent at the front of Moto2 over the last year yeah, as well. The makeshift flooring in the temporary tent next to you is always shinier, isn't it, I guess? So there you go. Obviously in, in Moto2, Remy's leading the championship now as well, Neil, and uh, he's got a three-point lead over Sam, 
six points over his teammate Raul Fernandez. Bezeki suddenly back in it now as well. You know, Marcos has a bit of a strange start to the year. Obviously, podium in Hareth, the high point, but uh, you know, he's been a bit under the radar as well. It looks like we're shaping up to pretty good season yeah shaping up I mean as we kind of thought it was maybe Fernandez is the surprise there but not for Adam obviously (laughs) Um, yeah the oracle of uh, (laughs) of Grand Prix racing Um, but um, yeah no I think I think it is shaping up really nicely Bezeki was kind of saying that um, he'd been fine in the first half of the first three races but um, just couldn't really understand why he was suffering from quite a deal of tire degradation front tire degradation uh, in the second half of the races that was somewhere we were struggling he said basically what he did after Portugal was just watch the races from the first you know the first three races back to back and study what Remy Sam Raul were doing differently to him and said he was in constant contact with the team they were floating ideas back and forth what to do so they made a few changes and he said from Saturday he suddenly felt like okay this is it so um, yeah you, you kind of only expect Bezeki to get stronger from here I actually always really enjoy it whenever you, you see riders sitting down to watch a session back or watch a race back because how they watch it is totally different to how we do and they'll just fast forward to alright I'll be on I'll be on screen around this section of the track I go to that and they just cut through the race in about five minutes but they get everything they need and immediately they're able to put it into practice it's always always impressive to see how quickly they can adapt what they're doing and, and different things what I found really interesting over this weekend was obviously in, in the Model 3 class we saw Pedro Acosta just continue to astound I was actually talking to Eugene Laverty at the Aragon Superbike test and I, I asked Eugene you know who's who's your hero Norge and he was there <laughs> it's Pedro Acosta he's everyone's hero now and uh, Acosta's performance really was stunning and we've actually got uh, Michael Laverty on the show once again this week and Michael's just going to give us his thoughts on Moto3 and Moto2 I thought the Moto3 race was a cracker this weekend. Denny's on shoe was excitable on the bike. He was quite wild, actually. You could see he was pushing really hard and wanted to lead every single lap. But the more considered rider, Pedro Acosta, had him figured out pretty much. And you could see in those last few laps, he just picked his moment, made the move halfway around the last lap and then just closed every single door. Unfortunately for Anju in the last corner, braked a little bit too hard. He was too eager front folded but you can't you know you can't knock him for his commitment he was he was all in he worked so hard all race long unfortunately it wasn't to be for him on the day but his results will come he just needs to calm down a little bit you never you look at the 16 year old rookie of Acosta and how fast and consistent he is and he always positions himself so well so how he delivers those race results is just impressive he rides way beyond his years we've been impressed with him so far this season but in Hareth when the bike wasn't quite working for him and you know he struggled throughout practice it wasn't an easy weekend and in the race he said he didn't feel like he had the pace to win it but he he figured it out he's a very very clever rider um I was impressed with Fanati as well I thought it was it was a good strong race from him ended up second in the end a little bit lucky in that carnage in the last corner with uh Masia going out and obviously I felt a little bit for Darren Binder he was riding beat up after that high side in practice and just looking for solid points and he got kind of caught up in that tangle at the last corner so no points on the board for him or his Patronus teammate so disaster in the Moto3 class and McPhee's luck or bad luck continues so yeah I'm gutted for John but yeah I enjoyed the Moto3 I felt the KTM boys just seem to have a bit of an advantage when it comes to the race format so we always say the, those bikes stop and go a little bit better than the Honda and it seems like Mino um, was finding the the kind of KTM's parked where he, where he needed to be in the middle of the corner where he needed to carry his roll speed. So um, watching 
basically Mino and Binder, they were, they were trying to roll through the corners and every time there was a Husqvarna or a, a KTM parked there. So it seemed to be a little bit more difficult for them boys in the battle, but you can't knock KTM. They've definitely improved their package over the last half of last season and kept that rolling into 2021. Moto2 was a bit of a different outlook this weekend. The Italians figured things out. So we always kind of said when we went back to Europe, I know Portugal's in Europe, but when we went back to Europe proper to a normal circuit that's uh, figured every year on the calendar, the likes of Digi and uh, Bezecchi figured things out. So a one-two for the two Italians, but a really impressive ride from Digi to clear off out front and listen to the confidence in his voice the night before. I, I kind of felt he thought the win was on and he just got to the front and he was so consistent. I think he had a little bit more left if the likes of Sam or Remy could have challenged him on the day, but he didn't need to exert himself too much so consistent and showing kind of the promise that everyone's seen in him. Obviously, Grassini, Fausto signed him up last year with a MotoGP contract for 2022. They all know what he's capable of, and even despite a bit of a inconsistent two years on the speed up, it's nice to see now he's on a Calyx. It's uh, it's all starting to click. So, yeah, I think he's going to be a thorn in, in Sam's side later in the season. He's definitely going to keep that momentum rolling. As for Sam, I thought it was a really strong performance for him. He uh, had to dig deep. You could see whenever he kind of lost the places to Remy and to Raul, he was in a little bit of trouble. Didn't quite have the, the rhythm he's had in those early rounds, but he just kept his composure. And then in the late laps, he was able to push on and, and fight back and stand on the podium. So that's the thing. Bringing home 16 points is so important for a championship campaign. And that's the the kind of mature Sam Lowe's going to work right now. He managed to put a few points into to Remy Gardner. So took three out of Remy. And I think Remy's going to be his, his uh, championship, main championship challenger. I, I do believe uh, Bezeki and Digi will claw points back. And Fernandez, his speed is undoubtable. But again, at the weekend, a little bit reminiscent of his Moto3 performance where he would struggle a little bit late in the race. That kind of came to haunt him there at Jerez. So a little bit of work to figure things out. But he is a, a very impressive rookie. But for me, those are the top five contenders in, in Moto2 when we looked at it pre-season. And they're kind of all coming to the fore now. They've figured things out. As for the rookies, Ayagura keeps impressing. Nice seventh place uh, finish for him. Only 12 seconds down in the win. So, yeah, that can't be, go unnoticed. He, for me, he looks very stylish on the bike, looks good, and he's made the transition to the bigger bike really well. So, I think uh, all the pretty much all the Moto3 rookies that stepped up this year have, have kind of clicked faster than the, the previous Moto3 world champion. Delaporte is still having a bit of a struggle. But, um, but yeah, quite impressed with, it. especially Fernandez and Ayagura. They, they looked like they found their feet. Uh, Steve, just before we go into Model 3, um, just hearing what Michael said there, obviously really interesting comments as always. Um, something Another interesting thing just to add that um, Gian Antonio said after the race, um, obviously he was on the, the Boscos Girl chassis the past two years, switched to Calyx. He was just saying that he was he thought it was a good chassis, a good bike, good team. But whenever they had off days, he said essentially there were 22 other Calyxes that were better, stronger than him. And uh, now he's on a Calyx. He doesn't really have that, uh, doesn't really have that issue. Um, you know, whenever it's a bad day, it's, uh, it's not up against 22 other guys that are having, you know, a better day than him. So, um, yeah, I think that, that was quite an interesting observation. And, you know, is another reason why I think he could be, yeah, pretty strong going forward. Yeah, and I think it's always interesting whenever you see that with the riders, whenever they do make a change. A lot of the time, you know, I remember, like, for instance, whenever you had Sam on the speed up, he always said that the big thing for him wasn't 
the days that the bike worked well. It was the days it didn't work well. And it had a narrow window when he was on it. And that's still the case because there's just more data for the Calyx bikes. So they've just been able to, to fine tune that bike a little bit more. But Moto 2 is always going to be like that. And Moto 3 is always going to be like it is as well, lads. And this was another weekend where we saw a big battle at the front. Cost obviously comes out on top. But this was one that you didn't really fancy didn't fancy calling all the way through it. Well, you just thought, let's fast forward to turn 13, really. I mean, it didn't uh, disappoint, did it? Um, I mean, we spoke on, on the main show and I said, I think one of my losers from the Grand Prix was Dennis Onchu. Um, you know, the the young Turk, I think, showing more metal than his older brother. Um, you know, I think it was a great performance up into that last corner and you can almost f- kind of forgive him for really going for it. I mean, of course, he sustained a pretty horrific injury. If you check out his social media channels, you can see it. Um, and Jaume Massio had a proper wobbly, didn't he, being knocked off on the last corner, which was a bit of a dent to his his championship aspirations early on in the season. Um, you know, Pedro Acosta won for, for some fantastic racecraft on the final lap, but then also maybe he was slightly fortunate to be out of all of that. And um, you can say, Romano Fernati, I'm going to mention him now, Steve, you know, just hugging the inside line and again, using some experience to keep out of the mess. Do you know what, like whenever I was talking to Eugene about it, the one thing he did say about Acosta is you can see that he watches loads of videos. He studies everything about what he's going to face during the course of a race. Because he said like in Qatar, we saw that, you know, he was able to place his bike where he had to place it. In Portimao, he made a move that no one makes in a Moto3 bike. And then in Hareth, he forced the mistake from Anshu because Anshu's going into that corner I'm making the move I'm getting through because it's the last turn at Hareth everyone makes a move in there but because Acosta had gone so tight he forced everyone to go around the outside basically and they just couldn't do it and then suddenly Acosta is able to to come through takes the win just a thought on Acosta I mean he's building the kind of momentum that's getting ridiculous comments like he should jump into MotoGP uh, and, you know, I think as a professional athlete in any sport, you can't really buy that kind of momentum and confidence and whatever else. I mean, it's not stupid to think he could maintain it. And re- I mean, he's got a ridiculous points lead at the moment. 51 points. 51 points, yeah. But then on the other side of that, I want to see how this 16-year-old teenager handles um, a drop in confidence. Um, you know, what happens when he gets to a track and he's not competitive or... Um, he cannot find the lap time. Um, you know, he's in the pack and finishes suddenly 12th. You know, I think it's going to be a vast kind of... I want to see how he reacts from that. I wanted to see how he, re- how he would react to having smoke blown up his posterior uh, on, on Thursday. And I honestly thought, watching the press conference on Thursday, I was like, this, is, this must be driving Aki Ayo mad because Ayo's job, obviously, is to try and keep his riders level-headed and grounded and focused. And here this kid, this 16-year-old kid, is there with his heroes, um, Marquez, Cordero, Morbidelli, Mir, and they're all saying how he is the best thing since, you know, sliced bread. Um, and, yeah, I thought, okay, this would be this would be interesting because surely if he has a, a crap session and his bike is rubbish, there's going to be part of him which is thinking, oh, it's not me. Like, you need to fix my bike but there was there was none of that i think he, he had to go through q1 which is like you know one of those like moments where you thought okay this could maybe be a bit dodgy he didn't qualify the best but he was f- four laps and he was there um and another thing that really i thought was sensational was um i forget which session it was it might have been an fp3 he crashed in one of the free practice sessions at turn six um basically he was going in there massive lock sideways like you wouldn't believe on a model three bike lost the front you know, washed out, no big drama, 
rode it back to the pits. Went on the first lap, he was back on again, did the exact same thing, but didn't crash. All weekend, he was practicing to make that move in the race on the last lap, and he took two and one. And, you know, as Steve said, you know, his, his line into the final corner was just brilliant. I mean, this kid's 16 and he's doing things like this. It's it's really quite astonishing. It's going to be really good, though, because he turns 17 in a couple of weeks and then we can at least put the, you know, he's 16 to bed thing. But, like, I, I just think what we've seen from him is amazing. Like, we've talked about it on the show already in the past about how this year is clearly a bit of a down year for Moto3 because you have so many of the top guys all stepped up to Moto2. So there is that little bit of a gulf. But whenever you're up against Antonelli, Mino, Finati, McPhee, these are guys with you know, the best part of 10 years Grand Prix experience, you know, and, and you're able to make them look like kids. You know, they look like they just don't know how to answer back. Well, when it comes to Moto3, what's the, the worst scenario you can envisage, starting at the back of the grid or in the pit lane? And Acosta's already dealt with that. I mean, you know, for some strange reason, you know, he gets a, a long lap penalty or, you know, he has the same scenario that he faced in Qatar. No, no problem. I asked him after the race, was it difficult to focus after what happened on Thursday in the press conference? And he said, no, not really that difficult. I was more concerned about my record at Jerez in the past, which hasn't been great. And then he said something that I thought was interesting. He said he turned off his social media after Qatar. So, you know, obviously looking at your Instagram comments and stuff, it's maybe not going to be the best way of staying level-headed. You know, you're either going to be amazing or you're going to be the stupidest worst rider. So Pia Costa 37 that follows the Panic Pass podcast isn't Pedro Acosta. <laughs> He's been sending in all those questions. I thought we were... <laughs> Hate to break this to you, boys. <laughs> but I do think it is interesting to see like, whenever he's got that level of maturity and it shines through in everything. Yeah, it's a really mature response. I mean, 16-year-old, you're getting like all these messages from young girls and, you know, lads. You're probably going to be thinking this is the, the best thing ever, but he has the sense to be like, nah, you know what? This is not going to help me with what I have to do on the track. And I mean, fair play. Yeah, I think what's interesting for me is obviously we talked about it in the preseason show about Moto3 about the challenges that the guys stepping up from CEV are going to face and we talked about you know Guevara, Artigas we expected you know the three of them to do really well as the year went on none of us expected what we've seen from Acosta but the moments that we saw from him last year obviously most of it was in the Red Bull Rookies Cup but CEV you know, he, he had a tendency to put his bike in the right place at the right time. Obviously, lost the championship to Guevara, but, you know, Isan Guevara in the CEV class last year was tremendous. Like, there is top riders coming through, and, you know, they look ready for it. And it's a bit like what we were talking about at the start of the show, just to go full circle. When you spend that amount of time on Grand Prix machinery, on Grand Prix tracks, it has to make a difference. It's not like the guys coming up in the British Championship where you're going to... Olden Park or you're going to Cadwell Park you're going to places that have no relevance at all for a world championship on bikes that aren't at the same standard you know and suddenly you know the likes of Acosta yeah he's 16 about to turn 17 but he's got a wealth of experience that riders just didn't have 10 years ago you're exactly right Steve I think then it comes down to mentality and that's where brands or teams even sponsors take punts on riders and and they hope it's going to work out but you know as as journalists as as fans uh, again as sponsors who are kind of observing this situation the only people that really know in depth are the ones dealing with these kids and talking to them on a regular basis and, and they can make a judgment on whether they've got the mentality or the intelligence to to, to to really make that step up to the senior level or the highest level. I think that's why we see some riders never really pushing on in terms of results or performance or, you know, dropping even out of the class. I mean, I mean, somebody, somebody like Alonso Lopez, for example, who you would have thought, 
you know, as, as progression to be made, but was dropped by the Husqvarna team in, in you know, in favor of Adrian Fernandez. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of examples of, of riders who just kind of, like we said, reach a point and drop off. Maybe it's just to do with the, the approach and, and, and how they go Grand Prix racing, which is a lot to ask of a kid. Yeah, and I'm actually quite keen to see what happens with Alonso Lopez because he stepped back onto a Moto2 bike in the CV Championship and he's up against Fermin Aldegir. Aldegir went out and won the first two races in Estoril. He's 16, he's jumped on a Moto E bike, looks fantastic on it, you know, qualifies the front row. You know, he's he's clearly going to use Alonso Lopez as his marker to say, you know what, I should be on a Grand Prix bike. I should be in a Grand Prix paddock. And that's what's quite interesting for all these riders now because again, it goes back to, there is just more depth of talent now. Someone like Lopez would have been able to find a Grand Prix ride to stay in the, in the MotoGP paddock five, six, seven, eight years ago. Whereas now, there's just so many good riders coming through that the patience is just, the patience is thin for teams now. But I thought when you, you look at, obviously we talk about Acosta. He's been able to win three out of four races. He's only dropped five points all the way through the season. Unfortunately, some of the more experienced riders, Neil, dropped out of this race you look at John McPhee four races no points you look at Gabby Rodrigo another incident where he's out in front shown his speed crashes out he's 70 points back of Acosta you look at Darren Binder obviously gets taken out by someone else he's 59 points down like these are like certainly Binder we all marked in as a title contender we all kind of thought like this could be the year where John puts it all together David obviously talked about uh, Gabby Rodrigo in, in glowing terms as well but like these these guys it's not thickening. Well, just before Neil comments, I mean, some of the TV images we saw from the Patronus Sprinter garage, I mean, they look pretty uh, dramatic, but with good reason, you know. What a disastrous Grand Prix. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I still think, um, certainly Binder, Masia, I know they're far away in the championship, but I think they'll, they're, they're too good to, you know, they'll have to get back in the in the running in some way. I don't, I can't, just can't foresee Acosta just, clearing off into the distance there's going to be some races where he's just lacking experience or you know he suffers from something or other some bad luck perhaps um and then we're really going to see you know if he has the championship um whereas this year um but yeah mcphee i mean it was just a yeah um strange one just something completely yeah um because if anything you would say before this season he had been consistent you know consistently there most races but um, it's just it's not clicking it was strange as well Neil because he didn't spend any time all weekend trying to do one fast time he was only focused on the race and then you know you have a crash like this and the unfortunate thing for John is he's had a lot of unfortunate incidents and they all add up and that's you know he's obviously stayed in Moto3 to try and win a world championship he had the opportunity to move on to a Moto2 bike didn't take it stayed in Moto3 but now you have to look at it and say if you're the Petronas team are you looking for, you know, one last shout with him next year whenever he does reach the, the age limit? Well, even for this year, Steve, I mean, McPhee's in the opposite position to Acosta where everything's in the, in a trough, you know. How do you get yourself out of that? I mean, we're talking about it with Sam Lowe's, you know, where he, he had been on such a high, went to such a low, you can't get any worse than crashing on the first corner to then, you know, bouncing back with a result. I mean, John really needs to bag some sort of degree a few points at least in the next race just to you know reverse the the trend of um, misfortune that he's experiencing yeah and i think that's the, that's the problem is that you know momentum is so hard to stop you know even for when it's going in your favor like acosta is right now that's a force for everyone else to try and stop it's not up to him to stop it whenever it's going really bad it's the exact same and the world just gets tougher and tougher and darker and darker and John's going through them through that right now four races in and you know he's had potential Neil all the way through the season so far but just comes up 
with with no points. Yeah, yeah, it just shows the perils of being on the back foot basically from the first race, um, and you're under pressure from that moment to make ground back up again. And um, I know John was, yeah, not to blame for the first two races, um, and uh, yeah, but it's, it's it's just not working out for him. Um, and I don't know what he has to do, but just get some points on the board next time out. You know, Le Mans, the scene of his first win with that team two years ago is a good place to start. Steve, I mean, if we're just coming to the end of the Moto3 section of the show, you've been to the World Superbike Test. That series is starting in a couple of weeks. What are your kind of impressions from, you know, what you've seen so far in tests? Is a BMW actually going to do anything? Well, I mean, what's kind of impressed you? I'll tell you what, BMW is in the same position as Aprilia in, in MotoGP for the last few years. They can spend a ton of money and they'll make a ton of progress, but they're still going to be at the back of the field. They're still going to be the fifth manufacturer in World Superbikes because Kawasaki, Ducati, Yamaha, you know, Honda, they've all spent big money and they've given themselves a competitive platform. Now, Aprilia has shown you can turn that around. Aprilia should have podiums this year. But for BMW, they now have to go through that stage trying to close up. I think they can. I think that it was interesting talking to them this week. They were trying new swing arms and different things to try and just generate a bit more corner entry grip so if they can find that they can make progress there's tons of power in the bike I was asking Mikey Vandermark about it and he was just like what just spins up you know you just you have too much power right now so they do have a lot of work to do to make sure that the bike can work well but it can get competitive but I'm not going to be going out and putting any money on them to be winning races yeah. or winning the championship I mean apart from the fact when, when Bautista came into World Superbike do you think there's do you think this could be Jonathan Ray's toughest year yet 2019 should have been it 2020 should have been it. Ducati's had the best bike on the grid for two years and hasn't been able to win the championship. If Johnny is beaten this year, you know, his run should have ended in 19. There's no two ways about that. And uh, his run will come to an end at some stage. But Kawasaki have made an improvement with the bike. You know, there were areas where it struggled last year and they are actually a lot more competitive now. So, you know, Johnny's the man to beat until he's beaten. And that's the, that's the way it's going to be. But I think it's been interesting to look at how Alex Lowe's has made progress over the winter and now if he can carry that into the opening rounds of the year. But the whole field's just getting closer and closer, tighter and tighter. The bikes are much more competitively balanced now. You know, you look at the work that Scott Smart did to make sure that a customer bike can be pretty much the same spec as a factory bike has closed everything up. And I think what's going to surprise a lot of people is you know, when you look at Tito Rabat, you know, Grand Prix world champion, MotoGP rider, and Tito's going to struggle as it stands right now until he's able to make that thing click. Yeah, shows the level as well. Yeah. So I think um, listeners will be able to look forward to a superbike show, a long overdue superbike show soon. It's been a while. We've, we've got quite a few already planned out. Myself and Gordo have sat down and we've recorded a few. So we've got interviews with Reading, with Vandermark and Garrett Gerloff as well. So they'll all be coming out soon enough now whenever we're in the lead up to the opening round of the year. So finally... Gordo will be able to get back to work on the podcast. I've missed him. I've missed him. I've missed him too. I tell you what, like it, it's not the same. Obviously, like when you go to these tests during COVID times, like we're having to record this outside because you're not allowed to sit together and different things like that. And you know, when you look at what you do at a at a race meeting, it's one thing. But when you go to the tests and someone like Gordo hasn't been able to go to all of them, you know, it it's gonna be it's gonna be great whenever you're able to sit down and just have dinner with them and you know get back to a little bit of normality for Superbike. It's been a long winter for us, you know. You GP boys have been back to work for ages now, it seems. Yeah, yeah. And speaking about a bit, little bit of normality, Adam and I are going to be enjoying that from uh, Monday. Um, they're getting rid of the curfew. Yes. And they're allowing bars to open until so 11 p.m. 11 p.m. They've be previously been closed at five. So. 
I mean, that's going to seem kind of pretty pretty wild. I, I'll be yeah, honest, Neil. I, I, was, I was wondering why you were knocking back the day drinks earlier on. Was, <laughs> well, there's this re- the, my words. <laughs> on a serious note, there's repercussions for that. For I mean, we've going for MotoGP. We're going to Le Mans, but then uh, you know we're we'll in Mugello and then uh, Catalonia, and you know if uh, if things continue to look quite good for the pandemic here in this particular region of Spain, then hopefully the paddock. Um, I can't remember if we mentioned this on the show the other day. It might start looking a little bit more like it's uh, like like not like like it's normal. Yeah, hopefully. And obviously, Catalonia's got the Spanish Formula One Grand Prix this week as well. That's behind closed doors, but you're hoping that soon enough we're able to get something back to normal. You look at football in the UK; they've got fans back for some matches. It is starting to open up again, and hopefully, MotoGP is going to be able to get to get like that as well fairly soon. So, from us here in uh, in our little enclave in barcelona for a change together it's uh, been good to talk moto 2 and moto 3 with you boys likewise steve yeah likewise yeah and uh, to everyone that's uh, listening to the show you can make sure to follow us at paddock pass pod and you can also support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast where over the course of grand prix weekends we sit down each day just to dissect the action get everyone up to speed from what the riders are saying during their debriefs and uh, you can become a paddock insider at patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast so for myself steve english from adam wheeler from neil morris and a big thank you to everyone for listening to today's paddock pass podcast follow-up show fueled by elf mark vds racing team This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.